Hey, everybody. Good morning to you guys. So good to see everybody here. And uh, thank you for coming. If you're new with us, thank you for being here. Um, I'm not sure if Dylan mentioned it. I can't remember. But after this service, uh, since it's the last Sunday the, of the month, uh, we have our Meet the Leaders time. And so if, if you're newer here and you have any questions about our church or if we can um, just hang out with you and get to know you better, we would love to do that and, and help you find ways to get connected here at Cedar Home. We'll be hanging out in the lobby. I think some of the leaders hang out over here. But uh, this is, we're planning on intentionally having some hang time after the service, so we would love to, to connect with you if you're able to stay. Um, yeah, uh, so the, if you're new here, we've been in the, the book of Acts, and <clears throat> this book was written by a guy named Luke, who was a physician, and, and in the past few uh, sermons, we've been in Acts chapter 15. And we've been reading about what happened at one of the most important church meetings in history. It happened in the city of Jerusalem in the year 48 AD. So this was pretty soon after Jesus uh, rose from the dead. It was 10 or 15 years after that. And at, and at this church meeting, the apostles and the Jerusalem elders and the church in Jerusalem discussed whether Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, needed to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And the specific question at hand was whether Gentile men needed to be circumcised in accordance with the Jewish traditions in order for Jesus to save them. And there were people on both sides of the fence there. But after much discussion, uh, the group concluded that no, 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 no. Men do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to follow the Jewish ceremonial law in order to be saved by God. Neither circumcision nor any other human work can add one iota to what Jesus accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. That was the conclusion of this meeting. And, and, and they said to, to suggest uh, that we can or that we need to add to or supplement Jesus' work on the cross, it really makes a mockery of God and of his gospel of grace, right? And, and the only way, they said, we could be forgiven by God of our many sins, the only way we could be made friends with God, reconciled to our creator, is by trusting in him, by trusting in his, his son, Jesus Christ, who did all of the work for us. And then, consequently, after uh, in trusting Jesus after he makes us born again through faith in the gospel, then we seek to obey God. We, we want to love others the way Jesus commanded us to love others simply because we love him. He's given his hearts now that love God and that see the beauty of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected as the most glorious and best news that we'll ever know. And so the council in Jerusalem, what they did is they wrote a letter because, right, this is before internet or postal service or anything. So they would hand deliver these letters to different churches in the area. Um, mainly, we're talking at this point, the church had grown to the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. It was still, there weren't a lot of churches still. It was pretty small. But they sent this letter out, and they sent it to the churches, and it said that because this new freedom from the Old Testament law was, it was going to take a little bit of time for Jewish Christians to adapt to culturally. Uh, they, they said that it's going to be beneficial if churches would help their Jewish members ease into this new way of life by doing a few, th a few things. 
And they encourage churches to serve the Jewish members, the Jewish Christians, by uh, abstaining from polluted idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality, okay? Now, we've kind of talked about that in previous sermons, so I'm not going to dive into all of that today. But those were kind of the four things they said. And, And the reason for doing this, the reason they said this at all, was not related to salvation. It was related to unity, Okay? They said it would be really helpful if you would do this to maintain unity and fellowship in the church by serving the brothers with a weaker conscience. And as you guys know, even today, uh, in, um, around the world and even in our own country, religion and cultural traditions often overlap and they become intertwined. And Christians need to show grace to one another as we practically work out for ourselves which parts of my culture should be rejected, and which parts of my culture can be accepted, and which parts of my culture can be redeemed for the glory of God. So that takes wisdom and discernment, and since we have different cultural backgrounds, we need to show love and grace as we work that out for ourselves. So we have two takeaways here from this church meeting in Jerusalem. First was this, that unity among Christians in local churches is very important. It is worth working hard to maintain, which is what they did. And second, a person can only receive eternal life by the grace of God, through faith in God the Son, Jesus, and not by adding any works, including circumcision. And 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 the result was, we read that the church was thrilled about it. As they spread this news, the church was excited because it meant that all members were, were, were equal in God's eyes. That like, there's not different tiers of Christians that were all saved by grace. And these two wonderful takeaways make today's passage all the more difficult and confusing that we're going to look at. And because, because right after the Christians work hard to maintain unity in the church, then what's going to happen here is Paul and Barnabas get into an argument and they decide to separate, okay? And then also, so we had two hard passages in a row, so I decided to knock them out together, okay? Also, then the next thing, right after the church makes it crystal clear that men do not need to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus, Paul circumcises his new ministry partner, Timothy, okay? So what in the world is going on here, okay? The short of it is this, that these Christian leaders, they want to spread the gospel, they want to do a ministry in a way that is most helpful and unifying to the church, even if the leaders have to suffer in the process. That's the unifying theme here, okay? So if you got your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 15, and uh, we're going to start at verse 36. And we'll talk about Paul and Barnabas separating first. Hey, I just want to tell you guys, I love you. I'm so thankful you're here. I realize in a room this big with this many people, uh, it's easy to get lost in the crowd or to feel lost in the crowd, but I want you to know we're really glad each one of you are here. And we recognize that each one of us uh, is coming in here with different circumstances. Some of us had terrible days yesterday. Some of us had decent days. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we want this to be a place of encouragement and love for one another, okay? 
And we need God to help us do that. So let's ask him. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that we could be here today. We thank you so much for the unending grace and love and fellowship that you give us through Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for the unmerited grace you give us, for, for, for the love and compassion you have for us. And it, <clears throat> thank you for changing our hearts, Lord. Uh, for those of us who trust in you, that the, the gospel that once was foolishness to us is, is now the wisdom of God and the glory of God and the thing that we most treasure. And so as we open your word, we just ask you, Holy Spirit, um, we, we recognize you are everywhere all the time, and at the same time, we need you here in a special way uh, to move among us and to move in our hearts and minds and um, to shape us into your image, God, for our greater freedom in you, um, and for your glory, we just, uh, we realize and recognize that uh, there are evil forces. We ask that you would protect our minds and hearts, our campus from satanic attack now by the blood of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So let's, we're gonna start here by looking at Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas, they're back here in Antioch, which uh, this is a place they've invested a lot of their lives into, into these people. This essentially was their sending church, which had prayed for them, um, ordained them essentially for their mission trips and supported them as they went throughout the Roman Empire and started churches. And after being back in Antioch now for a while just to encourage them and love on the people and catch up with them, Paul tells Barnabas, you know what? Let's do another mission trip. That's what it is, it's a mission trip. And uh, he says, let's go back to all the churches we started. Let's just check on the brothers and see how everybody's doing. That's a big, if, if you know about these cities, you know that's a bold statement because they, Paul was stoned in these cities. I mean, people tried to kill him in these cities. And now he's like, let's just go back and check on everybody. And, and Barnabas was like, yeah, that sounds good. Well, why don't we give John Mark another chance? Let's get him back up here from Jerusalem and he can go with us. And, and very quickly, we see Paul did not think this was a good idea to include John Mark. Uh, remember, Paul and Barnabas, they brought John Mark on the first mission trip. And Mark only made it about a third, of, a third of the way into the trip before he pulled out and he returned to Jerusalem by himself. And so in the English Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm reading from today, it says in verse 38 that, that Paul thought it was best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. And, and that phrase withdrawn, withdrawn from is actually really accurate to the Greek, but it doesn't really give the full punch of what Paul was feeling here. Other Bible translations have Paul saying that John Mark had deserted them on their mission trip. And I think that's probably more accurate to what Paul was feeling and thinking. Paul thought 
it's best that we don't take somebody who deserted us already, one who had abandoned us in the middle of our mission trip. Now, Paul didn't necessarily have anything personal against John Mark. He didn't, that's not, he could have, but it's not necessarily implied that he did. He, he probably just didn't think John Mark was mature enough or committed enough to join them for a second trip. And, and Paul and Barnabas, they just did not agree. And what made their disagreement even more sticky was the fact that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And so now the situation wasn't just about ministry. This was about family. And, and Barnabas, we know, man, from all accounts, he was a humble, godly man with a big heart for people. And he wanted to give his cousin John Mark a second chance. You know, yeah, maybe he did desert us for the first time, but that doesn't mean he's going to do it again. And Paul just did not think it was wise to bring him along. And apparently their, their disagreement escalated rather quickly into what verse 39 describes as a sharp disagreement. And this can also be translated as an intense emotional argument. And the author Luke, it's interesting, he doesn't really ascribe a blame to either either party. He doesn't ascribe blame to Paul or Barnabas. Both of these guys love the Lord. They loved each other. They, they both love God's people. But they both had a really strong opinion about the best way to move forward. And apparently, both of them felt so convicted about what the right thing to do was that they decided the best thing to do was for them to split up. And uh, they couldn't, what was obvious, they couldn't move together in disunity and animosity toward one another. Because that would have been harmful for them. That would have been uh, harmful for the other people coming on the mission trip. That would have been harmful to their sending church in Antioch. That would have been uh, harmful for the churches that they were visiting. And so Barnabas chose to leave Antioch uh, to meet up with his cousin, John Mark. And it says they sailed to the island country of Cyprus where Barnabas was originally from. And, and they probably followed up on the Christians there and strengthened the churches that had developed since they were there last time. And then to replace Barnabas, Paul chose Silas, who was a faithful Christian man from Jerusalem. And verses 40 to 41 say that the Antioch church commended Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord. And then Paul and Silas traveled by land back through Syria to Cilicia, which is like Galatia and those, those new churches that they'd planted up there in the north. And uh, they encourage those churches. They strengthen them with their words, we read, and with their teaching and just by being with them. So what can we learn from this? Well, for one, it's a healthy reminder for all of us that uh, as godly and as exemplary as the Apostle Paul was and as Barnabas was, they were still imperfect people like you and like me. Uh, Kent Hughes writes that Many people dream of doing ministry in a perfect church with perfect pastors, perfect leaders, perfect church members, and that is not reality. When we read the book of Acts, especially chapter 2, right, which we love, we can develop a somewhat unrealistic and romanticized vision of the church on earth. Yeah, let's, let's work hard to obey Jesus. Let's work hard to love one another the way that Jesus modeled for us and he commanded us to. And at the same time, we can't be so na naive to think that once we become Christians, we stop having opinions or that we have now mastered our emotions and our words and our actions. We're not um, glorified yet. Like, 
like Jesus is glorified. We're, sancti- we're being sanctified. We're being changed into his image. We're not there yet. We still struggle with sin, okay? Um, we can't think that we're gonna be acting perfectly and we can't come into a church naively thinking other people are too. That makes it difficult when something so dear to us as Jesus Christ and our bond in Christ unites us, right? But that's a hard kind of dual reality. But if we're a truly gospel-centered church that preaches the gospel, then we do life together as a family in the awareness that, yeah, sadly, we, we're gonna be hurt by other people um, and we're gonna hurt other people just in the same way as it happens outside of, of, of fellowship together. And, and uh, we're gonna be offended by people and other people are gonna offend us. But when that happens, what does Jesus tell us to do? He doesn't say, okay, I'm done with you. Done with you, you you know? Depending on what your deal breakers are, okay? So we're gonna get to that in a minute. But what he says is, there's a big difference between opinions and convictions, right? Opinions kind of come and go. Convictions are these deeply rooted, strong beliefs we have that like, this is a deal breaker for me. But when we sin against each other in the church, Jesus says, we need to get right with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we've sinned, we need to confess sin to each other. We need to forgive one another and move forward. And that sounds really simple, but it is one of the hardest parts about being a human and one of the hardest parts about living life alongside other sinful people like us. But what should we, this is what's interesting though, what should we do in a situation like this? Because I really, we really want to try to apply this scripture in the way that this scripture is talking about. So what do we do in a situation in which a sin really hasn't occurred, right? Yeah, Paul and Barnabas probably shouldn't have let their argument escalate to the point that it did, but, but neither Paul nor Barnabas were really necessarily wrong that we could see. They just disagreed about the best way to move forward in ministry. Um, when, we, when we have a strong disagreement with other Christians in the church about an issue or about how best to do ministry, what do we do? And then, then it kind of opens up this question, which we see in this passage, is it ever okay to go separate ways like Paul and Barnabas did? And the answer is yeah. Sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen for the good of everybody involved. Uh, This is why, you guys, there are so many different denominations. This is why there are different sizes of churches. This is why there are different styles of worship. This is why there are different parachurch ministries and different methods and convictions about how best to make disciples and how best to reach lost people in our community and our world. Now, obviously, leaving a church or parting ways with a ministry team or whatever, that's not the first decision you just want to jump to quickly, right? And it's hard to discern in this passage how quickly that happened because a lot of the times, you know, we don't, we can't gauge time between events super clearly if it doesn't explicitly say that in Scripture. But we know this, um, it's a big decision to part ways and we don't want to do that carelessly. And so what steps should we go through to help us discern whether we should stay or whether we should go? Well, first, we should pray for humility and seek to act humbly. Pray for humility and seek to act humbly. Paul wrote this to the Christians in Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, so when we have strong opinions about something and we find out that others disagree with us, right, in our flesh, what's our natural quick response, right? We, we can quickly become puffed up, prideful, defensive, even condemning toward others. And so we need the Lord's help to have a humble spirit and to bear with one another and to deal gently with one another with a desire to maintain unity and peace, if at all possible. Now, second, we should thoughtfully identify which issues we believe are worth breaking fellowship over. Which issues are worth breaking fellowship over? See, your deal breakers may not be other people's deal breakers. And, and you're not responsible for identifying other people's deal breakers or for telling them what their deal breakers need to be as long as they're within the boundaries of Scripture. Okay. Here's a hypothetical example. If, if you feel strongly convicted uh, that a church should take the Lord's Supper together every week instead of once a month, then you need to decide for yourself how important that conviction is for you. Is that a deal breaker for you? Is that for you an issue that uh, you would leave a church over? And for some of us in here, it might be. And for others of us, it might not be. Okay? And there's a million examples of what that could look like in the church and what that does look like in the church. And I listed about 20 in my head, again, of conversations I've had with people, and then I thought, that's not going to be helpful for me to list all those here. So I, I didn't do that. But <clears throat> as you identify your, your own strong convictions, you should ask yourself, am I convinced from the Bible that it is sinful if a person or church doesn't hold the same conviction as me? Some, in some situations it might be, in others it, it might not be. But if so, if you, if you believe that it is sinful for a person or church to hold the conviction that you don't hold, then you should probably leave that fellowship because you don't want to sin, okay? Now, let's say that you don't believe others are in sin for disagreeing with you. This is the next question. Will you treat them like they are sinful or that they are beneath you because they disagree with you? Because that's a problem too. If things don't go the way you think they should, can you continue in fellowship without being hurtful and disruptive to a church? These are really important questions to ask ourselves because this is reality. All of us, uh, you know, who are following Christ want to be with other Christians in a church that we love and that we support with leaders that we trust and with people that we mostly get along with, right? And, and sometimes maybe we'll even be able to find a middle ground, right? And everyone is comfortable with a middle ground. But, but I would think this, uh, I would think and hope that most of us who love the Lord don't want to divide churches and don't want to divide ministry teams and don't want to divide ministries or groups of Christians if the Spirit is in us. Now, next step, if after analyzing your own opinions, identifying what are, what are my deal breakers, you realize you really can't support a team, a ministry team, or uh, the church or the direction it's heading, then you should do what Paul and Barnabas did here. For the good of yourself, for the good of other Christians, for the good of the church as a whole, you should part ways. And a person that does that with, with, with the understanding that while no group of Christians, no church is perfect, 
there might be ministries or churches or denominations that better align with your own convictions. And, and many of you in here have done that in the past, and many people have left this church family and other church families for non-sinful reasons, okay? But if and when any of us ever decide that uh, the leaving a church or a group of Christians going separate ways is what we should do, what we need to do is point back here, reference Paul's command again in Ephesians 4, and who, he encourages us to leave in a way that's worthy of our calling, to live in a way, even with those who disagree with us, in a way that's honorable in God's sight. So what that means is, and I would encourage you if you're a Christian, this doesn't only apply to church, it does apply to church, but it also applies to other leadership areas outside of the church that you may serve in, in which people look at you and you're representing Christ to them. Don't go out kicking and screaming. Don't don't leave a ministry and then go talk bad about the ministry and all of its leaders, right? Because what that does, honestly, I had this conversation with somebody this week. What that does is it makes you look really bad and it could potentially create division where there just doesn't need to be division. And so, so one positive ex- exhortation from this hard, sad thing we see here uh, is, is may God give all of us the courage to act honorably according to our biblical convictions, even when doing so might mean it hurts or it might mean parting ways. This is the reality. Paul and Barnabas, they both loved the Lord. They both loved the church. They both wanted to reach the lost with the gospel, but they had strong different convictions about the best way to do that, and they couldn't meet halfway here. And so for the good of the church, for the good of one another, they decide we're gonna go separate ways so that we can minister in the ways that we believe um, are best according to our own personal convictions. Now, interesting thing is this. The Lord would redeem Paul and Barnabas' separation and he would bring much good out of this because essentially now, instead of one mission team, there are two mission teams. And within, this is cool, within the next 10 years, John Mark, or Mark, would write the earliest gospel that we have, the gospel of Mark, which is in the New Testament. Also, Paul would, later, we read in the, in the New Testament, he later writes kind words about John Mark in several letters uh, to the church. And so there's, there appears to be some sort of reconciliation and even encouragement of one another. But after this passage, we don't hear any more about Barnabas. We, and we just don't know if there was reconciliation or not there. Um, but this is the first pa- situation here in this passage we're looking at today in which godly people walk a painful road in order to do gospel ministry the way they believe will be most helpful and unifying for the church. The church is the bride of Christ. It's the people Jesus died for. And, and when you read scripture, you know how highly, I mean, Jesus prays for the unity of his people. He prayed about it at the Last Supper. Um, uh, of the things that the Lord says is an abomination, uh, dividing and causing dissension among his people is one of those, of seven things. It's, it's very important to him. And so obviously, if we're God-fearing people and we love the Lord, that should be important to us too. <laughs> like, I want to care for the body and not divide the body. Um, okay, so let's, let's read about the second situation then, okay? And it goes along with the same theme. 
And we're, we're going to now follow Paul and Silas on their missionary journey up through, uh, what, Syria and Cilicia, Galatia, through those churches up north of the Mediterranean. So let's, let's look at Acts 16, 1 to 5. And it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So that's a good way for that to end, right? <laughs> the churches are continuing to be strengthened and increasing in numbers. Well, so, so Paul and Silas, okay, they're returning to these churches. And in Lystra, they, they, they met this fine young Christian man named Timothy. Big heart for the Lord. And, and in order to make sense of this passage, we have to understand Timothy's situation because it's a unique situation. And I think that verse 3, let's see. Yeah, that verse 3 explains it a little bit. Timothy's parents were not the same race and they were not the same religion. And that made life for Timothy in the ancient world as a youth and as an adolescent and as a young man complicated, okay? Timothy's mother, her name was Eunice, as we find out later in the book of 2 Timothy. She was racially and she'd recently become a Christian, probably when Paul and Barnabas were up there preaching the gospel. That's when she came to faith. Now, Timothy's father was a Greek racially, and we don't know what his religious beliefs were. We, there's all sorts of speculation, but when it comes down to it, we just don't know. But this is what's clear. We do know that because Timothy's father was Greek and his mom was Jewish, Timothy was not circumcised as a baby like every other Jewish baby boy would have been. And that would have put Timothy in a really difficult spot socially in the ancient world, okay? So to no fault of his own, Timothy had not obeyed the Jewish law like all the other little Jewish boys had, all of his peers. He could not say he was part of God's covenant people. His mom was. He wasn't. Okay. So Timothy's mother, uh, she may have been in regular fellowship with the Jews, but her son Timothy, he would have been basically a social outcast. Timothy would have been looked down on uh, by the Jews for not being a true Jew. And the Greeks probably didn't have a problem with Timothy. But he and his mom were probably ostracized a bit by the Jewish community. So it's for this reason that Paul had Timothy circumcised. See, Paul wanted to bring Timothy along on this mission trip to go encourage churches that were made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. And we know that Paul's pattern was to go to the Jews first, right? Uh, like if you, if, you, if you were preaching the gospel somewhere for the first time, he would go to the Jews first. And, and so they would be going into Jewish synagogues to preach the gospel to the Jews. Well, why did that matter? I mean, would people really know that if he just showed up? Well, the passage says he was well-known in those communities, right? Timothy, in his half-Jewish condition, was well-known by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And so Timothy risked offending many Christian Jews because he hadn't ever been circumcised. Uh, he could have potentially come across to the Jews as a man who was blatantly, intentionally 
disrespecting the Jewish culture. And that would have made it really difficult to reach the people you're trying to reach. <laughs> it would have made it difficult to reach the Jews and to keep also at the same time the church united. And so for that reason, Timothy chose to be circumcised. Now theologically, Timothy had no reason to be circumcised, right? He was, it's very clear, Paul and, and Timothy, they believed you're saved through faith and alone in Jesus, regardless of whether you're circumcised or not. But for the sake of reaching the Jews with the gospel, and for the sake of maintaining unity in those churches, Timothy chose to be circumcised. He did not want his unique upbringing to be a distraction or a stumbling block to anybody. Now, this is the interesting thing. Had people insisted that Timothy be circumcised to be saved, Paul would have said, don't be circumcised, right? Because that's exactly what Paul told Titus, it says in Galatians 2, because he had also not been circumcised. He was a Gentile background, but people were saying, you have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul's like, don't get circumcised, <laughs> right? So they're teaching people. So it, it, this is not a salvation issue. This is a missiological or a missional issue. That is, this is for the purpose of spreading the gospel most helpfully to different types of people groups. And, and after being circumcised, it says, Timothy traveled with Paul and Silas to the churches throughout Galatia. And they encouraged these churches and strengthened them and delivered to them the instructions of the Jerusalem council. And verse 5 says that God continued to bless their mission trip by making more people born again every day through faith in Jesus. Okay, so here are a couple practical applications we can take from, from this part of the passage. First, you can help maintain the unity of the church by bearing with one another's cultural sensitivities. Okay? Um, we have to remember the church is global, right? The, the, the church is multiracial. And, and even within a race and within ethnicities, there could be many different cultural backgrounds. So as members of the church, uh, we might come from a lot of different backgrounds. We certainly do, I would think. And as we mentioned earlier, we will not and do not need to have all the same opinions. However, we should humbly bear with Christians whose opinion and consciences are different than our own. Okay? Specifically here, God instructs those with stronger consciences to serve those with weaker consciences as much as reasonably possible. So just like Christians today, the first generation of Christians had different opinions about a number of things, and, and many of those differences naturally arose just by bringing in together a whole lot of different types of people and to say, hey, you're a family now. Figure it out, right? Um, but through Paul, God tells Christians this. Don't judge one another and don't look down on one another for having different opinions about matters that are not of primary importance. So this is what Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 14, 13 through 15, 4. He said this, Therefore, let us not put judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who, are, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So, now obviously, so how does this look like in a real practical way? Well, obviously, it's not possible to accommodate every single request and personal preference of everyone in the church. I thought through how to do that, it's not possible, okay? However, there are many ways that we can consider the needs of one another and serve one another. Uh, For instance, let's just take an example here, okay? Some Christians choose to drink alcohol in moderation, others don't, for all sorts of reasons. Let's say you're a Christian, let's, hypothetical situation. Let's say you're a Christian who, who enjoys alcohol in moderation, you're having a barbecue at your house with a bunch of friends from church. It's a good thing. Most of the people you want to invite drink alcohol. But you have a few friends you want to invite who don't drink alcohol. And let's say that the reason they don't drink alcohol is because they don't feel good in their conscience about drinking alcohol. As a Christian, what are your options for how best to love your non-drinking friend? Well, there's a few options. You could choose not to invite them, right? That's probably the easiest route to go. And depending on the situation, maybe that's the best route to go. However, if that is the pattern for all of your social gatherings, then you're gonna be continually excluding a number of people who are also your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Again, depending on the situation, another option would be to call your friend who doesn't drink alcohol and just bounce it off of him and explain the situation to him. You you could say you're planning on having alcohol at the barbecue and you're wondering if that's gonna be a stumbling block for them. And and maybe your friend's totally fine with it. They're like, no, I'm totally cool. I'm just gonna have a pop. Or maybe your friend says, he appreciates the invite, but he'll probably just, he probably just won't go to this one, right? That's another way to go. A third option is that you invite all your friends over and you just don't have alcohol there because you don't want it to be an issue for your friends who don't drink. And depending on the situation, that might be the best route to go. And so it really does depend on the unique situation. I'm not trying to paint a broad application, but the point is as Christians, we want to care about one another so much that we actually think through things like this. Which might seem really foolish to the world. But as people who are growing in Christ and who want to love one another, we're actually crazy enough to think through things like this 
because we want to love them, okay? We want to do what's most unifying and strengthening for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And hopefully we'll do what Paul instructs us to do. Hopefully we'll not look down on our brothers and sisters whose opinions are different than our own. Rather, we want to seek to live according to our own convictions while also loving and serving and honoring other Christians who see things differently than us. And we need the Lord's help to do that. Now the other application here from this passage is, is to prayerfully consider how we can become all things to all people for the sake of sharing Jesus with them. Okay. I used to have a pastor who said, let's do everything we can short of sinning to reach people for the gospel. I like that. I think it's good. In, in, in his letter to the Christians in Corinth, Paul wrote, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. So as Christians, we, we must be willing to adopt different cultural expressions in order to reach people in those cultures as long as we can do so without sinning and feel in our consciences that we're doing so without sinning. And it takes a lot of prayer and wisdom and, and counsel and sensitivity to others to figure out what that looks like. And sometimes, this is a reality, adopting a people's life, adopting a people's culture for the sake of reaching them is gonna be painful. Ajith Fernando just gives us a few examples which I think are good. He writes this, one who loves meat may need to become a vegetarian if he finds that eating meat will be a stumbling block to the Buddhists he's trying to reach. Certainly one who likes hunting will have to give that up if one is to work with Buddhists, since Buddhists consider killing animals a serious sin. A missionary may need to take on the tough task of learning a new language in order to identify with people. One who is trying to reach people in the slums may need to live near the place where he or she wants to live, and as a result, he or she may have to endure the pain and terror of having his or or her house broken into. So, and then he says this, in a society where people are allergic to pain, these things are difficult to endure. Most people will avoid such things. But as Christians, we should voluntarily take these things on in order to bear fruit that really lasts. So the main question is to ask, how am I willing to serve and honor others in order to share Jesus with them and to follow Jesus alongside them. See, a lot of people are willing to go and share the gospel, especially people you don't know, right? It's like, I'm never gonna see this person again. But are you willing to serve people in a way and make sacrifices in order to follow Jesus alongside them? That takes more sacrifice. Um, One of the most beautiful things about Jesus' people, really, about the church, is that we bring with us a vast, 
beautiful, diverse spectrum of colors and languages and cultures and opinions. And with that diversity comes the reality that we're not all gonna agree on everything. And some of us are gonna have stronger convictions about some issues than other issues. The question for us is this, how can we love God? How can we love one another? How, how can we love the church the way that God wants us to and tells us to? And sometimes that's gonna mean bearing with one another's differences. It, it might mean serving each other sacrificially and gladly moving together forward, forward together despite our differences. Other times, as we see in this passage, it might mean we need to follow our own convictions that we strongly hold and also preserve the unity of God's people by parting ways. And as God leads us to do that, may we, whatever we do, honor the Lord in what we're doing and how we do it. And, and certainly, this is an interesting thing Dylan and I were talking about this week. When we come face to face with God someday, we're gonna find out that some of our opinions were right and some of our opinions were wrong. And we're gonna find out that some of our decisions were right and some of our decisions were wrong, even when we worked really hard to try to make the right decision. And many things, many things we could do, even when we tried doing it with the best intention, prayer, counsel, everything, many things could have been done better. And so, where does the gospel fit in here? Well, as Christians, we live this life knowing that even though we may try to do everything perfectly, even though we work hard to have opinions that are in alignment with God's word about everything, we're still gonna mess up, we're still gonna struggle with sin, and we still need a savior. And what, what good news it is, <laughs> This is where the gospel comes in. What good news it is that through faith in Jesus, all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our accidents, all of our mistakes, all of our, all of our best efforts that even fell short are covered and forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. You will not be saved because you were right about everything or because you performed perfectly for God in this life you will be saved because you trust in Jesus because he is the perfectly righteous one. He is the one who's right about everything. He performed perfectly for you before the Father and in obedience to the law on your behalf. And so may we savor and celebrate this grace and love that we have in Jesus Christ and may we seek to love one another even when it hurts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for just the compassion and mercy and grace that you show us. And as we walk through the different situations in our lives, God, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would give us wisdom. We wanna pray for wisdom and pray for help. And we do wanna live lives that are honoring to you. And we do wanna have convictions that are honoring to you. And just, I pray for wisdom that you would show us, man, is this a hill worth dying for? Is this one I just need to back off on and, and, and find middle ground on or what? We need your help, God. Uh, but it, whenever we're in these situations, we just pray that uh, you would um, uh, mortify our flesh. <laughs> you would kill our pride um, and help us just to move forward in humility and love and genuine concern for, for your people and what's best to unite your church. And God, we just thank you so much that even in, <laughs> in light of our many failures, which you know we're aware of, 
Jesus, when he went on the cross, he died while we were still sinners. He died knowing we were going to do that. And it didn't stop him from going to the cross. That you love us, Jesus, and that all who trust in you are covered by your blood, accepted by you, promised an eternal hope of life and bliss with you, promised your presence right now with us to help us and the Holy Spirit. And um, I just thank you for who you made us into spiritually, Jesus, in union with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.